Welcome to Living With AI, a podcast where we look at how artificial intelligence is changing our lives and the impact it has on our well-being. Today's topic is AI and online misinformation. I'm joined by Jeremy Claw, an assistant professor at the University of Nottingham, and he's been working on the task project titled Privacy Preserving Detection of Online Misinformation. Welcome to the podcast, Jeremy. Hello. Before we get started, we're recording this on the 6th of September 2023, so just keep that in mind uh, whenever you're listening to this. Um, Jeremy, I mean, where do we start with this? Can we just give us a bit of background to the project? And and Mm -hmm. I'm not going to ask why it's important. I think we should all know why this is important, but tell me a bit about the project. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, okay, right. So basically, this project uh, comes from. Well, we have multiple rationales for the, the for this project, right? So there's two bits. There's the online misinformation bit, which, as you said, is quite obvious, right? We know that this is a problem. Everybody knows it's a problem. We hear it all the time. But then there's the privacy preserving bit, which is the bit that actually people don't really seem to understand the reason for until we explain it to them. And the way I usually explain this project is actually quite simple. Like, imagine if I told you that I would like to count, right, how many times you are exposed to swear words online. Well, the traditional way of doing something like this is that I would go, I mean, I say you, I mean, in general, the public, right, is that I would go on a website, like, let's say Twitter, and I would just grab all the data that I can, and I would analyze what's happening there. Then I would just take whatever statistics I have divided by number of people and that would give me my number. And, you know, just said like that, that's fine, right? Except, of course, that is not for multiple reasons. First, nobody actually gave you, you know, permission to use that data. You just grabbed it without asking. The second one is that you are making very wild assumption about people by selecting a specific data set like this and then grabbing it and assuming that it is representative of the world. Like for instance, if the, if the website in question was Twitter, that means that I'm assuming that people who go online are just Twitter-aged people. And that's, that's making some very strong assumption about who we're talking about, where did that come from, and so on. And finally, maybe the most important one, is that we are headed towards a lot more encrypted communication. Uh, end-to-end encrypted, and that's been the subject of debate uh, quite quite a lot, is whether we should have this encryption. But the fact is, it is here now. And if it is encrypted, it means you can't even see what's happening there. So the way we need to do this is that we need to observe those signals uh, well at either end of the communication. So either the person that is generating the swear word or the person who is receiving it. And this is where the privacy preserving comes into play, right? Because swear words is a very simple problem to solve. But misinformation is a lot more complex. And nobody who's generating misinformation is going to let you analyze what's happening on their computer, for obvious reasons. Uh, (laughs) But people who are receiving it, on the other end, might let you analyze things in a privacy preserving way and then kind of collect this signal over uh, a large population uh, without violating their privacy. And that's kind of it in a nutshell. So we want to make sure that we have a way of analyzing those kind of phenomena um, without violating privacy uh, and without making very strong assumptions about the people that are victims of, of these kind of things. And th- there's a problem here in terms of uh, 
qualifying stuff though as well because as i would say there's a sliding scale of swear words right i mean exactly, you might say yeah. some very mild swear words and then and some people might have different cutoffs as to what is swearing or what is kind yeah. of severe profanity if you like is the same thing true in misinformation is it you know is it okay if someone's maybe telling a white lie online and then you know how does that work <laughs> yeah so you're you're completely right well there is even a cultural the cultural kind of uh aspect to this so swear words are are yeah they are a thing but misinformation is a lot more complex um, and for that reason, when I said that we're going to put like and analyze it at the end, what we mean by that is that we're going to go and put like a little bit of software on your computer and it's going to be analyzing what you see. Um, nothing is going to come out of it. Like we don't receive anything. Like it stays in a computer and then you're always in control of your data. And that's the key to this, right? And because you're in control of your data, that means that you have you kind of enrolled almost like a citizen science aspect to it, right? I say, Sean, can you go and like check that this data is actually misinformation? Like we thought, we think that all those things you've seen might be attempt at propaganda. Uh, do you agree? Why? Why not? And so on. And then once you've done that step, then are you okay with sending us some aggregated statistics uh, of of what you've observed? And this way, you're always in control of data, whether it's when it's generated, when it's sent, and you like nothing. Like it's it's all under your control. And I think you know you've hit the nail on the head with the propaganda thing. That's like the headline for this, <laughs> isn't it? You know, we've yeah. we've seen people talking about the U.S. 2016 election, the Brexit um, vote, things like this. People have claimed misinformation, targeted campaigns have affected them, if not entirely decided them, but. That how do we approach that? Because often people are seeing what they want to see, aren't they? I mean, it's sort of self-reinforcing. Who's who's going to choose to be told that what they're reading and they want to know? Sorry, I'm kind of making assumptions here, but often people are reading something that supports their existing uh, sort of beliefs, right? And they and they enjoy that kind of like self <laughs> not certification, yeah. but yeah. I mean, you're completely right. Like, you cannot help people against their will. Uh, that's, that's, that's a simple fact that we have to deal with. Um, however, uh, what we found, so th this is a pilot project and I, I need to qualify this, like data collection is still in progress. So we, we, we're starting to see results, but it's taking time because it's quite a complex thing to do. And it's a very small project in terms of manpower. Um, but what we're seeing is that people are actually interested in, whether they're being lied to, right? They just don't know what to look for. Um, and we take a very specific angle to this. Uh, we, like, we were specifically looking for linguistic constructs. So it could be stuff like turns of phrases, specific vocabulary, specific ways of writing things, which tend to be indicative of an attempt at misleading people. So we can't say, oh, look at this. This is misinformation. This is not misinformation and so on. However, what we do, say is that look at all those words, look at those specific sentences. These tend to be indicative of uh, misinformation. And now you can take the steps to actually check whether it is. But of course, we can't force people to do that um, for good reasons, I think. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But I mean, you're absolutely right. I think people do want to know if they're being lied to. I mean, that's that's really important, and that kind of feeds back into the trust element of the trustworthy autonomous system. Yeah. So we want to be able to trust stuff. So it's interesting you're taking this linguistic view. Are you going to have things like satire coming up as false positives, though? I mean, is that is that a bit of a challenge? That is a very that is a challenge. But fortunately, satire does tend to be a very small percentage of. Uh, of online traffic, but it is a challenge, and not just that. It, a lot of misinformation is a lot more subtle than sentences. Uh, things like manipulation of images, manipulation of sounds, uh, like some complex. But this is like a starting point, basically. What we're trying to find out is whether people are amenable of having this kind of software on their computers. And they tend to be, which is very encouraging, because now that, now that we know that people don't mind participating in basically, you know, cleaning the web, <laughs> like seeing well, how bad is it now, uh, then it means that we can build more complex things in future projects for detecting images, sounds, videos, which might be manipulated, uh, and kind of pushing, like, pushing it forward as much as we can. Um, but you're right, it is very complex. and. Uh, it's good you said the date in the beginning because I don't think we're going to have solved misinformation now or in 10 years or in 50 years. <laughs> so. It's an on, it's an ongoing fight, isn't it? I mean, um, the other thing, of course, you mentioned in manipulation of images and videos, but kind of probably more importantly here right at this moment is the quick it's not quick the ability for ai to generate huge amounts of text that might <laughs> might not be misinformation yeah. and perhaps that will learn about phrasing things differently is that an issue i it guess is an issue. i'm thinking yeah i'm thinking of kind of you looking at those linguistic sort of phrases but then it's an arms race then isn't it it becomes well we'll try not to use those linguistic phrases. yeah uh, you, you're right and i mean assuming you're referring to things like large language models and and like gpt and all that um, it it is it is a problem, and I think the thing is we've always had ways of generating text like this. Uh, it was not as complex. What we have now is that we can make it look extremely realistic. But generating text has never been an issue. Uh, like it's 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 all tech. Um, it's just that now it's becoming harder and harder to distinguish artificial from naturally generated. So I don't know that it is going to be an arms race in that aspect. Like we take more of a, you know, like we want to build an observatory, um, and then we can decide what to do about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but this is this is a first step, uh, and I don't know that there is a solution for the large language model issue. Uh, it's it's more of a more of a social thing. Um, of like being skeptical of what people read online uh, rather than, than a technical challenge. But that also feeds it a little bit into the kind of education element, right? So w people need to learn about this. And uh, for my money, I think they already probably learn a certain amount in schools, but that definitely needs to be enhanced, doesn't it? You know, people need to have have the old adage, don't believe everything you read, sort of drilled into them, because mm -hmm. it, it, sometimes it seems too convenient, doesn't it, when you see it in, on the screen in front of you? Yes, and especially if it confirms already existing biases, uh, which is the dangerous bit. Um, and, but I think there is, yeah, as you said, that's, that's an education issue and more of a critical thinking slash, uh, like, I want to say, like scientific kind of uh, culture uh, aspect of it. Like, you know, knowing what is in the realm of possible helps you 
in distinguishing health misinformation from uh, information. But I don't know. It's 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 a very it's a very complex uh, complex issue. Um, but yeah, you're right. That's education is definitely part of it, if not most of it. <laughs> yeah. The the other the other thing I was thinking when when I you know saw about this project is that um, companies like Facebook and Twitter have. Uh, is that, are we supposed to call it X now? X, I formerly known as that. Twitter. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, just going to make make light of that one. But you know, have have tried to implement misinformation kind of tools before, and I think there can be sometimes an issue with with assuming somebody is making a decision for you. So how do we get around that that idea that oh this the you know these academics they think they know what you know what is true and what's not? How do we get around that kind of preconception? Yeah, that, that is part of the reason why we kind of strayed away from making a specific statement about what is and what is not misinformation and then focused only on advising people to uh, look out and then kind of confirm information instead. Because as you said, like, and, and this has been observed, I think, I, I don't recall like the specific papers, but like, I know Twitter specifically, they have this uh, like community notes slash a fact checker note of like, well, this has been found to not be true. But in practice, if you really were convinced of something, this is not what is going to sway you um, one way or another. So I'm not too sure that, I mean, this is probably part of the solution, but it's not the entire solution. Um, it, it's not going to do anything about existing biases. But I, I see, I mean, from what you've uh, described, it's, it feels a bit more like when people voluntarily put, say, I don't know, a virus checker on their computer. It's like you're thinking, you, you know, if you're educated enough to know that there might be things out there and you see that there's a tool that can help you with that, then hopefully people will download this and, and add it. Does it a bit like an extension on a browser or something like that? It is, yeah. It's an extension in the browser as, as, a, as a first step because we're more, mostly focused on online information. Uh, that you can see in like websites, social media, and so on. As uh, a browser extension, um, which analyzes basically all the text that's displayed, uh, and just computes statistics, and then runs some very small machine learning algorithms uh, embedded in the in the extension to analyze basically what's happening, uh, and try to make guesses as to something might or might not be indicative of of misinformation. Um, but yeah, as you said, this is almost pre like preaching to the converted. As in, like, if you install something like this, then you already are the type of person who is going to be skeptical of what they read, uh, and therefore, are we really doing that? But on the other hand, I, I like to think that this is more of a feasibility study of embedding this kind of application rather than uh, a proper long-term study of how do we make people care about this. Um, because from, from the data that we have, we see that people do care about it. But then, as you said, well, if they didn't care, they wouldn't have participated in the experiments. So really, <laughs> yeah. who's yeah, to yeah. say? <laughs> so it's self-fulfilling in some respect. Yeah. I think then the other thing I was thinking is, it, and maybe me being a, a lay person in this means I, I may have got the, this slightly wrong, but if you enter into this sort of misinformation sphere, uh, I kind of maybe making more of it than you know, <laughs> um, than, than I need to. But um, 
you have obviously the the browser possibly collecting cookies and then maybe relating or referring you to or certain sites referring you to more misinformation and 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 is there kind of a snowball effect that occurs when that sort of happens yeah that does tend to happen in websites which are driven by recommended systems so things for instance like youtube right like if you watch a video on youtube then it's extremely fast at learning about what you're watching and then recommending you more of it. Um, and it's very easy to go on YouTube, but that's not the case for like Facebook groups, uh, TikTok videos and so on. It's very easy to go from an innocent video you just click on to the most vile, like, like far right propaganda you can think of uh, just in a few clicks. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah, because yeah, yeah. it learns from a very weak signal and because those those websites are based on engagement, they learn that if you click on this and you watch the entire video, it means that by giving you something slightly more extreme, they'll keep you here longer and show more ads in your face. Um. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, it does come down to the mighty dollar at the end of the day often with these things. Yeah. Unfortunately, the side effect can be that you just radicalize somebody in one direction or another. Um, do you think there's a kind of uh, a possibility that the tools like you're describing might be able to apply to things like online videos as well? Or is it more at the moment as a proof of concept, you're looking at text and, and websites or, and, or news articles or whatever? And Yeah. So, yeah, I, I do think that things like videos are um, potentially things that we could be analyzing. Pictures might be easier because it's easier to find out something that is manipulated just by analyzing images. Uh, videos are a bit trickier, but there are algorithms that we can use uh, to actually okay. detect when something has been manipulated. Um, like or we, uh, I say manipulated, that's the wrong word for it. Like the most uh, common form of using videos for, or, or, or images for manipulation is actually just recycling existing videos uh, out of their context and then using them in like other things. So if you can detect that, let's say an image of uh, something comes from a movie or a very old news article and has, has just been repurposed to propel uh, some yes. hate speech or whatever, then you know that this is misinformation. Um, one one of the very obvious ones I remember seeing quite a lot a few years ago was um, a, an old photo of the UK's House of Commons with nobody in it, and then underneath would be the quote, MPs when voting on delete where applicable, what, whatever very important topic, not there. Then next to it would be a house full of, you know, the house was full of MPs all voting, and this is this is the MPs voting on their own pay rise or some, something like that. <laughs> and then, you know, these photos, there's no verification that these photos came from anywhere that, you know, or any specific time period. Um, and you would have to do quite a lot of uh, fact-checking and, and research to prove or disprove <laughs> these things, but it's easy to see that and think somebody's already done that work and, and just go along with it, right? Yeah, 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 it is. Um, yeah. I mean, th there are some measures of uh, information literacy that you can take, uh, almost like information hygiene to an extent, uh, yeah. in terms of fact-checking, um, but it is tricky and time-consuming. 
So, and, and as you say, we're preaching to the converted. People who are going to do that are already sceptical and therefore... Um, is there any mileage in looking at the metadata with some of these things? So, for for example, because I work with YouTube quite a lot, I know that we upload um, video descriptions and hashtags and all sorts of tags to try and set the, if you like, context for that video so that the right people find it. And I'm assuming, of course, the algorithm uses that in a way to, to do the recommendations, etc. So could could that be something that gets looked at, the, the metadata around the images or videos? Assuming we have access to it, potentially, yes. But once again, because we are working on the client side of things, we're not assuming anything about the, the person serving the content. Uh, they make it a bit tricky because sometimes we don't really have access to a lot of those things. Uh, they are used in the background to search and and propose and push data, push information on people, but they're not really accessible uh, all the time. And and that comes back to your central premise of not sending data off the computer and keeping it client side, right? Exactly. Yeah. I've I've been a bit technical with you, and perhaps we need to be a bit more kind of task hobby. It, it's not that technical in the sense that we're not going into details, but. Yeah. The autonomous aspect of it, the autonomous system is is really simple. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah, yeah. You have a bunch of very small algorithms and they are deployed on your computer and because they don't communicate any data and they ask you for permission all the time, then you trust them. <laughs> or at least you should trust them. Um, yeah. um, I guess one more thing that's that I always find interesting and, and surprising is that we've found like two categories of, of people. The ones that really bought into the citizen science thing and they were like, yes, I want to help fight misinformation. Uh, and some people just want to give their data away. They're like, yeah, just have it. I don't even read to read the consent form. Uh, you look like a trustworthy person. Just have my data. I was like, no, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> That's the opposite of what we want. <laughs> You yeah, should be yeah, doubting yeah. us all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's quite interesting, isn't it? I mean, uh, was this sort of when you're recruiting the people to be part of this? Were they were there people meeting people, or was it uh, online? How did you do? You know, it was it was physical because we wanted to observe them using the software and then seeing kind of the pain points and making sure that we have an idea of what disturbs them. Do they understand it? Do they understand what's happening? Uh, and and also after that we had like group discussions just to see what was their experience of misinformation online. Do they think they might have propagated misinformation by accident before? A lot of them do, um, and they feel bad about it. It's not their fault. I mean, nobody has the time to fact check everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, like some of the things, like some like. Like oh, I like software is fine. Just just take my data. I don't want to see all of this. <laughs> and then some some really bought into it. They were like, yeah, I want to have tools where I can like like send some information, like modify this, just give you more stuff. Uh, it's it's very interesting. A uh, little diversity in the way people approach this. It's the opposite of what you wanted. You want you want people to kind of question stuff and think about stuff, and you've got people thinking no don't worry about it everything's fine um yeah and those are still even within the group of potentially skeptical people there are still people who yeah make a make yeah. a snap decision perhaps exactly exactly i think it's we just focus so much on the trustworthy systems 
but some people just trust whatever. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they trust based on appearance, based on, oh, that's a university person and so on. Yes, um, yeah. And we need to disentangle that, right? Because I want people to trust it, even if I was a random person off yeah. the street who built yeah. the software. Uh, and and also, you know, um, I suppose, um, I obviously thinking about my own experiences of things that I've seen online and things that I've potentially shared and mistakes I'll have made down the line of, you know, accidentally sharing something that's misinformation. Um, I've kind of found myself looking at the source and trusting certain sources because of my past experience, perhaps national broadcasters or academic institutions. But you also need to realise that they make mistakes as well, never mind deliberate misinformation and there's also mistaken misinformation isn't there um yeah but yeah life's short and we don't all have time to double check and treble check everything so a tool that would help us with this would be yeah i think it's an excellent idea yeah and i mean the, the core idea is that like by by pointing out those turns of phrases and so on they, they could potentially be a training effect to it of making people more skeptical when they see those things um, like for instance, a very common one, right? Over emphatic language, like hyper kind of opinionated uh, kind of things. We, I mean, you, I think you and I both know that this is usually a signal that something should be taken with a grain of salt. <laughs> As long, I mean, in the terms, in the sense of like, oh, a news article or news adjacent article. Um, but that's something that is not obvious to some people. And then if you can tell them, well, look, look at this kind of language, this tends to be used sometimes to just convince people of their viewpoints despite, despite facts. Uh, and we are hoping, so we, we haven't run those experiments yet because they need to be a long-term thing. Um, and we just didn't have the time, basically. <laughs> but um, we are hoping that down the line, we can have a bit of a training effect of like by pointing out those things repeatedly to people, then they can kind of embed that in their own information consumption habits. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, and, and, that's, and that is uh, going to be great kind of longer term. Uh, I suppose there will be always some sort of subtle uh, misinformation that, that kind of informs people as well. But, you, you know, you, you can only do what you can do. I... Um, I'm wondering, is this something people might be able to try or download, or is this a closed trial at the minute? Is this something, you know, your extension, is it released oh, widely? Can um, somebody try it? So it's, the extension is open. Um, that being said, it does rely on a central server, which is not always running because it's yeah. cur like currently being worked on. Uh, but both parts of the software are open source and openly downloadable. Uh, they just might not be open to the lay public <laughs> in terms yeah, of like they have you have to run and everything is a bit of a pain um, be, but yes yeah it's a piece of research software so down the line we're hoping to develop that further uh, and then make it accessible but yeah that, that would be great as a kind of next step I suppose and, and try to kind of make it a bit broader and, and see if you could open it out um, some nice sponsorship from someone like Amazon uh, AWS or something like that just to kind of you know pay for the uh, the uh, service support would be great so if anyone's listening um, contact Jeremy <laughs> yeah if you want to ethics wash your business <laughs> do something good Jeremy, it's been brilliant to talk to you today and I wish you all the um, luck because the project's ongoing, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's we are reaching towards the end, but we started very late, so it's kind of still. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we still have some some something to close. Yeah, good stuff. Well, look, all the best for the rest of the project, and thank you so much for joining us on the Living with AI podcast. Thank you. If you want to get in touch with us here at the Living with AI podcast, you can visit the TAS website at www.tas.ac.uk, where you can also find out more about the Trustworthy Autonomous Systems Hub. The Living with AI podcast is a production of the Trustworthy Autonomous Systems Hub. Audio engineering was by Bordy Limited. Our theme music is Weekend in Tatooine by Unicorn Heads, and it was presented by me, Sean Riley.